All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning of verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Now here's sort of the roadmap for today. We're going we're to just talk for a minute, then we'll make things sort of confusing, and then we'll clean them up with application. Is that a deal? Okay, so here we go. In this text, it says that God himself is going to sanctify us completely. That's what he's going to do. My trouble is that before it says he is going to do something completely, it tells me to do a whole bunch of stuff. And I know when you have conversations with people, they say that you shouldn't say always, you shouldn't say every time, but there is a whole bunch of always and every in this text. Like pray without ceasing or give thanks in all circumstances. Now how I read the word is like this. I will give thanks in the circumstances that I want to give thanks for because I like those, but the things that I don't like, I'm not going to give thanks in the middle of those. I'm gonna complain about them. Because that's what you do. When you're in the middle of a circumstance that you don't like, what do you do? You complain. When you're in the middle of a song being sung in church that you don't like, what do you do? Protest by putting your hands by your side because I don't like this song. Right? When you hear a sermon that you don't appreciate, what do you do? Because that's what we do. We don't give thanks in all circumstances. We give thanks when we're happy. We give thanks when we have what we want. When things shift to something else, where now thanksgiving isn't uh, natural, now we just don't do it. The conflict is, if we are going to be healthy in all facets of who we are, we have to be obedient to the fullness of the word that God has given to us. So when we neglect portions of the gospel, there will be a lack of health somewhere in us, either spirit, soul, or body. There will be a lack somewhere. Why? Because we did not do, we didn't conform, we didn't listen to the thing 
that God told us. So let's just sort of, I don't know, just talk through this. We're not going to really preach through this. What that means is this probably isn't going to be hugely inspiring by the end. What this means is we will get a lot of information that will help us understand some things so that we will make adjustments that we need to make because in the end, if you just shout about something and walk out and do nothing, it, has no, it adds no value to your life. But rather, if it creates transformation and you step out of here changed, then you will have a better tomorrow than you have right now. Not because you just got inspired, but because you actually were transformed by the gospel of God. So let's just kind of look at this. It says, he will sanctify you completely. Let's deal with that word sanctify or sanctification. When we talk about sanctify, that is a verb version of what God does to make you holy. It's the same word for holiness, and we see holiness throughout the Bible. We see it throughout the, even the Old Testament into the, the New Testament. And there's a command for us to be holy. There's also the understanding that God is holy. We are to pursue holiness. But this here says God will sanctify you. That means he will make you holy. So let's understand sort of that process because actually that process separates denomination from denomination because people understand or believe this differently. So let's just talk about how we handle this in this house. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, this is chapter 5, let's back up to chapter 4. It says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now he's going to explain what that is for you according to the will of God, that you abstain from immorality, that you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So when he's talking about sanctification, he's bringing you into this process of holiness through obedience to what he commands. Something isn't good all by itself. Something is good because God calls it good. We don't get to decide what is good, and we don't get to decide what is evil. God determines what is good, and God determines what is evil. And when you have faith in him, God calls you holy, and then because he called you holy, now he requires of you to pursue that which he has called good. So he sanctifies you because of his grace that you receive by your confession of faith. And then you, as being someone who is sanctified, then you pursue what is good, that he calls good because he sanctified that as well. It's important we understand this because we don't take goodness on ourselves. God decides. God all by himself decides what is good. We don't get to make that call. That isn't something that is in the process of humanity. We don't get to decide what God has decided. And we don't get to revise what God has already stated. When we understand this, we simply obey him in the entire process. We don't argue about not doing something because it's hard or because we don't want to. We argue for obedience because obedience is what he called us to. 
So if he says your sanctification requires that you abstain from things, then we have to understand holiness is required of us, and that means we abstain from things. And here's what I love about this. He builds the whole thing on this truth. He gives you his Holy Spirit. I get in a habit sometimes, and maybe you get in this habit as well, and I just kind of short form who God has given us, meaning I just say the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit. Uh, we see it throughout the Bible, the Spirit. Like, it's not, it's, not, um, it's not a wrong thing to do. But when we sometimes only short form and never embrace the fullness of how God describes him, we miss the point. We've been given not just the Spirit, we've been given the Holy Spirit. His primary purpose in our lives is to consecrate us. He makes us holy. He doesn't make us weird. He doesn't make us quirky. He makes us holy. He sets us apart. That is what it means to be sanctified. God himself sanctifies us. And then we who have been sanctified, we are called to a lifestyle of holiness. So when it says he sanctifies you completely, I love that before that entire sentence, he says, now. What does it mean? Now he sanctifies you. Once you have done the things now you have the completion of the sanctification that he started when he called you holy. All right, so now that we're forced to embrace, we are involved in the process. Now we can't be lazy and just skip the first eight verses, just claim the one in the middle that says he's going to do it all by himself. He is going to complete it all by himself, the thing that he started all by himself, but there is a process from what he started and what he completes that we are called to participate in. This participation is where we experience health, spirit, soul, body. When we are obedient to the gospel, we will be healthy in our spirit, healthy in our soul, healthy in our body. We'll have health when we have obedience. So let's sort of, um, let, let's, let's do it like this. Let's talk about spirit, soul, body very, very briefly just to create some distinctions. And this is where it's going to get a little confusing. And then we'll just limit the conversation to spirit and clear it all up for today. Because we're going to talk about soul and body next week. I think we all know what it's like to be sick in our body. I mean, most people had a cold or the flu or something. And when you're sick, you usually don't perform very well in all the other areas. I don't, I don't know how you are, but when I don't feel good, I'm in a bad mood. So it's just my body that's sick, but my emotions, my soul is irritable. Why? Because I'm sick. I'm not irritable in my soul. My soul's just irritable because I'm sick in my body. Uh, allergies. I don't know what's blooming. I don't know what's out there right now, but it is driving me crazy. I'm annoyed by it. I get done at the end of the day. My throat feels weird. I'm a little, run, nose runs a little. I'm just like, why? Why did I go outside and run today? Why did I do that? 
Because just get done, you feel miserable. Felt great when I was doing it. Don't feel great now. What, what is that? It's just something in my body responding that I don't like. I'm the only one in the room that gets sick. I, I realize we're a faith church. I get it. I get it. So let's calm down for just a minute. All right. Your soul. You know what it's like to be very, very healthy. Like your body, very healthy. You feel great. But somebody is annoying. Somebody is an annoyance to you. They said something to you. They did something that you didn't think they should do. And now you're just in a bad mood. You're not in a bad mood because Jesus fell off the throne. You're not in a bad mood because you don't think you're saved. You're not in a bad mood because you're sick. You're in a bad mood because people are stupid. That's why you're in a bad mood. It's frustrating. And you, you know what that is like to feel that way in your soul. Um, you also know what it's like when you can't always describe it. You just know, I, I don't feel like myself today. I don't know really what's going on. And you have to dig a little deeper to find out what's the matter. So we know what it's like to not feel right in our, our soul, our, our emotions, um, how we kind of process the world. But we sort of neglect this portion of us called the spirit. And we talk about the things of the spirit and the things that the Holy Spirit does, but we sort of ignore our spirit. Because I just, I know this might be a revelation to some of you, but your spirit is not the Holy Spirit. That's kind of important to embrace. You have a spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. He dwells in you. You aren't him, and he's not you. We clear? Okay, so you can be unhealthy in your spirit. And so let's talk about first what is the spirit so we can discuss this, this sort of idea of being healthy. And I'll just go ahead and give you the Cliff Notes version. Here it is. If you want to be healthy in your spirit, you have to listen to the word of God. If you want to be healthy in your spirit, you must listen to the word of God. So let's go in there. Spirit, soul, body. How do we get there? Like Paul uses this phrase in Thessalonians. Is this an idea that was throughout the Gospels? Is it in Genesis to Revelation? Or is it sort of a new idea? Actually, it was there throughout. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, um, Moses says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then he goes on and he says, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So he's talking about the law of God that we meditate on day and night. That law will be put on your heart. He didn't say it would be put on your soul. He didn't say it would be put on your body. He said it would be put on your heart. So we have to understand this connection, this link between the word of God and the spirit of man. He says, I will put my word on your heart. Now, then when we go and we read sort of throughout the rest of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, we see the words uh, heart, soul, and might sort of juxtaposed. They kind of get, um, 
they, sometimes they, they, almost get, they, they almost sound like synonyms. They, they, they can sound like they're saying the same thing. You can read about the heart and it's really talking about the soul or it says something about the soul that's you know, really talking about the heart. And then we see this word spirit introduced in the New Testament and, and it just gets sort of confusing sometimes. And the reason why I'm bringing this out is because I'm going to assume that you started your reading plan January 1. That you are planning to get in the word more this year than ever before. If you were here last week and you heard Pastor Reggie say, much word, much faith, you can't walk out of the room. If you didn't have a reading plan, I hope January 9th you had a reading plan. You need to get in the word, right? We're there. Okay, so as we get in the word though, we're gonna see these words Spirit, soul, body. These words, heart, soul, might. We're gonna see them kind of moved around. When Jesus in Matthew quotes Deuteronomy 6, 5, he says it like this. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with a D. It says might in Deuteronomy. He says mind in Matthew. And then in Mark and Luke, it talks not just spirit, soul, mind, or heart, soul, mind, but rather heart, and soul, and strength, and mind, or heart, and soul, and understanding, and might. And so we see words kind of introduced, and I don't want you to be confused at all, because those words are in there, and they just speak to a mystery that will not be fully solved on this side of eternity. Let me just, let me tell you this about you. You are complicated, you are complicated. Husbands all think their wives are complicated and they're so simple. What's simple are the three or four things that you want. That's simple, young man, but you are not simple. We are not simple. So when God describes us, it's sometimes hard to wrap the complexity of existence into just a few words. So we make it all the way to the end and here is how Paul just sort of sums us up. Spirit, soul, body. And so I'm not ignoring the rest of the language throughout the gospel. These words, spirit, soul, body, are informed by all of the other ways that it is described throughout the Bible, but I'm gonna sit on these three words for these three weeks. Is that a deal? Spirit, soul, body. I do not mean to add any confusion. If you see it as heart, soul, mind, we're just using Paul's words, the words from the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that breathed all of it. We're just using the synopsis that we're given in Thessalonians. Spirit, soul, body. Okay, now what does it mean to have a spirit? He says, your whole spirit. Like, what is, what is that? What does that mean? What is that? Let's go back to our creation, because I think it's important that we understand the things that are in our spirit. Your callings from God are in your spirit. They're spiritually discerned. Your gifts from God, they are in your spirit. They are spiritually discerned. That's why we call them the fruit of the spirit, or we call them gifts of the spirit. They're discovered in your heart, in your spirit. And so when we talk about the spirit, how did we get one? How did that all, how did that process happen? We go back to Genesis chapter two and verse seven. It says, for the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now the word breath there 
is actually spirit, the ruach. So if we go back to Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was out form and void, and the spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep, the ruach of God, the spirit. Now in 2.7, he breathed into the nostrils the spirit of life. So what came before God gave you a spirit? Your body was formed. He formed the body, then he gave a spirit. We see this at creation. How does that work for us? Because um, we didn't get created out of the dust like Adam and Eve. It wasn't, this is not how it happened for us. The, the dust that was used to create them, they passed on, passed on, passed on. So it's the same dust or genetic code from generation to generation to generation to generation. So it's still dust. We just call it genetics today, right? We tracking? Okay, how did you happen? Without being too descriptive, One half of you met the other half of you. One half of you, the dust of your dad. One half of you, the dust of your mom. 40 to 150 million halves of you started a journey. They made it to a door. 5,000 half yous made it to the next door. 1,000 half yous made it to the next door, the last door where 200 of you are, and only one half you made it through that last door to meet the other half you. <laughs> then God took the dust of half of you from your dad and half of you from your mom, and he formed you. And at the formation of you, at that forming, he breathed into you spirit and soul. He gave you in that moment what is eternal. Now that's a big deal because then at that moment of life for the next nine months, you continued to grow. But what was actually growing? The body was growing because he gave you your spirit. He gave you your soul, and those two parts of you are eternal. But your body is one of those things that grew nine months in the womb, and then you were let out, and then you grew for the next 16 years. And now at 16 or 17 or 18, like you're full grown, growing from the moment that God formed you. Now you find this place where you are like done growing, but there's a part of you that continues to grow, your brain. Your brain will grow for the next seven or eight years. So at 25, your brain is finally formed in its fullness. This is one of the reasons why this blows my mind, but we didn't actually know this in development terms until just you know a few decades ago, but the priest was not allowed to minister until he was 25 years old. And now we've discovered that brain function is done growing at the age of what? 25. So it's just kind of cool that we see where God said, yeah, you're not ready to lead people in any kind of significant way until you are fully formed, fully made, until I'm done with you, now you're ready to do some things. That's nothing despairing to a teenager. That's nothing despairing to a young adult. What it does for us is it keeps us in the right position. It keeps us where we understand our place in the world, where we don't think at 17 we've got it all figured out and we're better than the 35-year-olds who are leading us. God didn't call you to lead anything at 17 except yourself and maybe a couple of your friends. He didn't call you to lead your teachers. 
I know, I didn't even get, I just, just, I'm just saying, I'm just saying it's important. See, that's why we can't respect those who are over us if we think we're better than them. So just in terms of doing the thing that God commanded us to do, we can't do if we don't understand our place in the world. Right? We there? All right, let's, let's, keep, let's keep on moving. So God then formed us and he gave us spirit and soul. Now, I say that spirit and soul are eternal or they live forever. Why does that matter? Why do I say that? Because that's what the gospel says. In Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30, Jesus said, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28 says, there is no male and female in heaven, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 7, it says that the dust returns to the earth where it came from as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. And then we see in Revelation chapter 6, where at the throne of God, at the feet of Jesus, there are the souls of all the saints who have died before what they're calling the resurrection. So we see that your spirit and your soul are eternal, but your body is not eternal. Your body will return to the dust from whence it came. Now, I was asked this the other day. Maybe it will help you. Uh, maybe you don't care. I was asked the other day about cremation. Somebody's like, I, I don't want to pay for that. It just sounds really expensive. Does it matter? Somebody told me that I shouldn't be cremated because like, I need my body to go to heaven. It's a great question. And, and it is normative for people to be buried. Like that's been the case for a very, very, very long time. But, but please don't see that as a gospel command because something was normative. Here's what we know about the body. When it goes to dust, it's gone. A buried body a hundred years later is just teeth in a box. I don't mean disrespect. I mean, there's, there's nothing left anyhow. So God's not like, he doesn't need your sack of bones to put back together to resurrect you. So don't get so nervous about cremation. That's all I'm saying. Take that, leave it, doesn't matter. We're just talking about the, the body returns to dust. But the spirit and the soul, they do not return to dust and they will exist forever. But being eternal this way doesn't mean you're eternal that way. And I only bring this up because this is a big deal today. This wasn't a big deal 50 years ago. The way that we described our spirit or soul or body didn't matter in some terms that it matters more today because we've become so comfortable with sort of a cultic or even heritage heresy, just kind of heretical theology. Let's just say it like that. Um, I, I, I read, read a book. I actually heard a preacher when I was growing up, and he gave a, a vision of heaven. And in his vision, he said that he saw these little angels, like baby angels, floating around the, the throne of God, and they were saying, send me to earth to be a spirit. Send me to earth to be a spirit. And it's, it's lunacy. And I'm not just attacking someone's vision. We're told to test all things. Like if when you have a vision or a dream of heaven that doesn't line up with the gospel, it might make you feel good in your soul, but that doesn't mean it's truth. So it won't land in your heart. It can't. 
you were not pre-existent. Again, we're just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just make a point, make a few people irritated, and then I promise I'll move on. You weren't, you didn't exist before you were formed in the womb. Like, God made you. In the beginning, let's do it this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Who was in the beginning with God? The Word, Jesus Christ. He's the only one who became flesh. Jesus became flesh. You didn't become flesh. God made you flesh and gave you a spirit and gave you a soul. You didn't exist in heaven and then just had some kind of an incarnation on the earth. Your spirit was made. It was created. That, that means that God was before you, so you give him glory. You aren't God with like a little G, I've heard people say. Silliness. Silliness. We aren't God. We are made in the image and in the likeness of God. Like a plane is in the image and likeness of a bird. A plane is not a bird. You, <laughs> I know, nobody likes this. Like, well, you're not making me feel real good about myself. It'll actually help you because the only way that we can obey God is when we understand who we are. Humility begins with knowing who you are. You were made subordinate to him. When Jesus said, I am, they said, whoa, who do you think you are? Were, were you before Abraham? And he said, before Abraham was what? I am. That means Abraham, the man, was not pre-existent with God. You, like Abraham, were not pre-existent with God. You were created, you were made, you were given spirit, you were given soul, you were given body, you were given these things. And these three things make up who you are. This is why he says, you have to keep your whole spirit, your spirit, your soul, your body. You do work. We do the things that are necessary. So how do we keep our heart or how do we keep our spirit healthy? Like if God gave me this and this is eternal, how do I keep it healthy? We listen to the word. We listen. See, all of these things that he commands us to do, we see in the word. We don't know to do them otherwise. There's no other way to know. When he says rejoice always, Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. How do I know that? By the word. When he says abstain from all forms of evil, how do I know that? From the word. But I might put those in the discipline or habits of the body, and I might put those in the habits or the discipline of the soul. But there are things in this list which are deeply spiritual, and they remain in that spiritual place, meaning they find their origin there. Like when he says that you are supposed to be at peace with each other. There are a lot of times today we're trying to make peace sort of a psychological construct. We're putting it here in the soul. But yet peace is a fruit not of the soul. It's a fruit of the spirit. The Holy Spirit who dwells in your spirit gives you peace that is spiritual. It is known spiritually 
and then it flows into the other parts of your body. If you are not at peace, it's not because you have a broken mind, but there's something in the heart that's troubled that we have to dig a little deeper and find. It's not here, it's there. Peace is there. Why do I say peace is in the spirit? Because Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 says, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. No law. You can have all the peace. You, as a follower of Jesus, can have all the peace you desire. Now, how do I have that? that that's the question. But he says that it starts with love. Like, love matters. Uh, some people get a little sideways when you say there's no marriage in heaven or there's, there's no gender in heaven. Like, why does, why does that matter? Here, here's the thing. You will know people there that you know here. You will love who was your wife here. You'll love them there, your kids, you'll love there. Why? Because love never fails. Love goes on forever. We'll know who you are. It says that there is every nation and every tribe assembled. So there is, when you put on a glorified body, I guess let's go back to that. I didn't explain that to you. Yes, your body goes to dust, but then in the resurrection, you're given what? A glorified body. That's good news for a lot of us. <laughs> that's pretty cool, but it, it has a reflection of the body that was here because we will know and be known there. You'll, you'll know each other. When Jesus appeared with Elijah and Moses, the disciples knew exactly who it was. How did they know? They just, they had a, no, you'll know each other. Why? Love is eternal. Heart, soul, your spirit, your soul, eternal, lives forever. Things like your body, gender, not eternal. Oh, yeah, no, gender's a body thing. Why do I say it's a body thing? Well, it can't be psychological. It can't be in the soul if the soul is eternal and in that place where eternity is, there's no male or female. So I can't take gender and put it in my soul. It has to be a construct of biology or the body which returns to dust. See, it just sounds like we're up here sometimes doing theological wrangling. It actually has massive practical content when we look at the world and the arguments that people are making today. And what's happening is Christians don't know enough about who we are and what exists in each phase. And so we're just accepting lies from the enemy. And then people are saying, oh, Christians are just against something. No, Christians aren't against something. The world is actually against the gospel. Well, we have to flip it. We aren't against anybody. Evil's against the gospel. What is wrong will always be against what is right. What is dark will always be against what is light. It's always, the flesh will always war against the spirit. We aren't against anything. What is false is against the gospel. So here we are, spirit, in the resurrection, we're given a glorified body. It's a form or a likeness of the body that was here, but it's something far greater, far better, that does not have the restrictions of what we have restrictions here on the earth. And so peace is in that space as well. Joy is in that space as well. He says you have to live at peace with people. You'll never live at peace with others if you aren't at peace with yourself. Sometimes we get frustrated because there's something about them that's annoying to me. Maybe there's something about you that has to be worked out. I don't know how you are with raising kids, but what's most annoying to me is when they are just like I am. 
when there's something in me that I know has held me back and I see it in them, there's, a, there's something in me that is angry and I want to just take it out and just pull it out of them. Because in me, I see it. In me, it frustrates. It's not, I'm not losing my peace because of them. I'm losing my peace because they reflected what is in me that bothers me. See, let's say it this way. Um, we, we talked about the fruit of the Spirit. There are also gifts of the Spirit. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There are gifts. It says here that we're supposed to help people. Helping people, it's actually a gift. It's a spiritual gift. There are people who you are actually called to help the vision of another. What does that mean? That means that there's a vision that is so compelling that God gave somebody and you have a gift of assistance or helps and you want to connect to that vision and you want to make that vision happen. God didn't give you a vision. He gave them a vision and he gave you a gift to make that vision come to pass. That is a gift of helps. The one who might have the vision might be given a gift of leadership. Now here's where we get really frustrated as people is when we are supposed to help and we are actually frustrating. We're actually making something harder. There's nothing more frustrating at work than if you are put on a team to help a vision and you push back against the vision you're called to help and you wanna lead your own. You'll never be more frustrated. Why? Because you weren't called to lead, you were called to help. We put all this emphasis on leadership today as if every human being is called to be a leader in this gifted capacity. It's not so. If, you, if I wrote a book on helps, you know how many we'd sell? One. My wife would buy it. Now, people don't want to read books about learning how to help somebody with a vision. We want to, lead, we want to read books about having our own vision. But what if you're called, gifted to help? What, what if? Now here, flip side, if God's given you a vision and you're just too meek or you don't have confidence, so instead you're helping somebody, you're called to serve so that you can be given leadership. But at the moment that God says this leadership is yours and you're hanging on to a helper office, what happens is you'll be just as frustrated. Why? Because God is saying, I want you to do this, and you have to have the confidence and the faith to step out and actually do it. But if you sit here in this space, in this helper space, and God called you to be in that leadership space, you'll be frustrated. Why am I saying all this? Because peace is a spiritual condition. If you aren't moving in your giftedness, if you are resisting what God has called you to be, then you will be frustrated. You will lack peace. No matter how smart you are, no matter how healthy you are, you'll never have peace because peace is spiritual. And you'll wonder why you're antagonistic. And you'll wonder why you're frustrating. Those are just um, evidences, demonstrations of a heart, a spirit that's not at peace. Now, what's the answer? You have to listen. You have to listen. We have been called to listen to the word of God. And I use the word listen instead of read. I use the word listen instead of get into the word because I think it's very specific that we actually listen. Let's look at it like this. In um, Luke chapter five and verse four, Jesus said to Simon, Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon said, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, 
but at your word, I will let down the nets. There was a moment when Jesus, the word who became flesh, said something. Jesus was the word, but something shifted when the word that Jesus was spoke the word. And we see this in the Greek and it gets lost in English because we just use the word, word. But there are two words that are used in your New Testament that explain this far better and it gets lost. And I wish it didn't. Logos is the word, rhema is the word. Logos, rhema. Both of those Greek words are translated word. But there's a massive difference between logos and rhema. Logos is the word, like holistically, the word. This is the word. But what is rhema? It's the spoken word. When the word is spoken, this is the word. For us, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 24 was the spoken word. When it says faith comes from hearing, Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. It didn't say faith comes from hearing and hearing through the logos of God. It said faith comes from hearing and hearing through the rhema of God. Faith comes by hearing. That's an intentional word. It's not meant like, oh, it just can mean whatever. No, no, it means hearing. Faith comes from hearing the word. There are people who study the word. They go to Christian schools, Christian universities. They can answer questions. They score A pluses in Bible class. They, they can answer from logos, but they have no hearing of the rhema. They, they haven't heard the word. Let me just give you what I feel like is a massive help when you're reading your Bible and you're checking off the box on your app. Read it. When you hit something that is, it just, it hits different. It just hits different. Read that out. Like, let logos become rhema. And you say, but I, I didn't, nothing hit me. Keep reading. But I'm, they told me to only read through verse 24. Ah, well, it's not about being limited by something. It's about reading until there's a rhema. I get in the logos until the rhema speaks to me. Something has to wake up my heart and that word that wakes up my heart, now I speak it and I say it over and I say it over and I say it over. Why? Because I'm taking the word that was in page and I'm speaking it so that it becomes rhema to me. It is the spoken word of God. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Revelation chapter two, Revelation chapter three, seven times the same phrase. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Well, now I just put the spirit into this conversation who dwells in my spirit. So now the word becomes a spiritual thing. But how is the word a spiritual thing if the word and the spirit are different? 
Because the Spirit didn't become flesh and dwell among me. The Word became flesh and dwelt among me. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They're three. They are in oneness, but but they are three individual persons. So the Word isn't the Spirit and the Spirit isn't the Word. But if I'm getting the Word in me and it says faith comes from hearing, hearing by the Word of God, and the one who's listening, let him hear what the Spirit says the church is. Is it the Word or is it the Spirit? That distinguished phrase matters because it takes what is Logos and the vehicle of the Spirit of God takes what is Logos and makes it rhema to you. And we see it the most clear in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17 because it says you take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I thought they weren't the same. They're not the same, but the sword of the Spirit isn't taking the logos. The sword of the Spirit is taking the rhema of God, the spoken Word of God. And the Holy Spirit has always been the vehicle by which the Word of God is spoken on the earth. Every single time you become aware of the Word of God in you, that is God's Word for you in that moment, the Spirit of God just lit you up. The Spirit of God just hit different in that moment. And when you feel that, there is a calling on you not to just read over it, but to stop and to speak it. Why? Because God is saying, I have faith for you in this passage. I have a daily bread for you in this moment. But if all you do is read it and you don't speak it, you'll miss what I have for you. So I will speak the word in that moment and take what is logos and it becomes rhema to me. And and I know that that sounds like, well, is it that big of a deal? It's a huge deal. It's huge. We We can't stop halfway. Jesus said, launch into the deep and let down your nets. I toiled all night. Jesus didn't say to go out 15 feet. He said, launch out into the deep. Sometimes we haven't seen what we've wanted from God because we didn't go far enough. We were content to just read, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And we think, oh, that's interesting. They're the same. And we move, oh, no, 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 no. Stop, go back. They're not the same. Don't just skip over things. When you have a curiosity that peaks in you because you're reading the word, that's the spirit of God saying, go deeper. I've got something for you here. And you're like, I've been reading all day. Yeah, yeah, you were reading all day, but I've got something deeper for you. So, so go a little deeper. But why? I read, I've read it already. Read it again. I said, say it again. Say it until it gets in you. Psalm 119. The psalmist said, I have, I have stored up your word in my heart. In it. It's got to get in you. How does the word get in you when it is spoken? When you say it, and you keep saying it, so that you can actually throughout the day meditate on that word, there is a faith that will grow in you that is unstoppable in that day. See, like if you saw that, it said, be at peace, be at peace, be at peace, and that just, that woke you up. What now what? Be at peace. You just say it all day. You get in your car, you go somewhere, they pull out in front of you, ah, be at peace. You ask her out. 
She says, no, be at peace. You really liked him. He asked her out, be at peace. You wanted that promotion. They just gave it to that person, be at peace. You've been praying for that wayward child. You texted them, they ghosted you, be at peace. Peace is not your response to what is around you. Peace is your response to the Spirit of God in you. When His Word goes from page in you, when His Word goes from lips in you, when His Word comes in your heart, there is a peace that passes understanding. There is a joy that flows not in response from a raise, but there is a joy that flows in response to knowing that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords has promised me all good things. We have to listen. When we listen to the word, we will have a healthy heart. 